Welcome to Beyond the Lead, where two young thinkers discuss current events and big ideas. This podcast provides in-depth analysis, along with free-flowing discussions about politics, philosophy, foreign policy, psychology, and many other fields you need to know about. Here's your hosts, Mike and Patrick. Welcome to Beyond the Lead. I am one of your hosts here. I am Patrick Forn. You can find me on Twitter at PatrickFO. And I am Mike. You can find me on Twitter at Mike Stinner. That's Stinner with three N's. Mike, S-K-I-N-N-N-E-R. What's up, Patrick? How's it going, Michael? Uh, it's a really long day. Just had a fun final, or it wasn't a final exam, but it was an important exam. Midterm. For... Was it a midterm? Close to. It, it was like right. as important as a midterm because we only have three of them, so... Right, exactly. Right. I just got off of class myself, so this is a post, post class recording right. for us. Our brains which, are just which is our abnormal. Are right? <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready. We can do this. Absolutely. So, so our main lead story tonight is actually about President Trump deciding not to recertify the Iranian nuclear deal. Um, I've been following this story. Well, I've been following the nuclear deal close for two years now. Um. I actually am a, a political science um, graduate student, and I focus on U.S. foreign policy, and I pay particularly close attention to the Middle East, even though Iran's not technically a Middle East country, but right. it's connected to Middle East countries, like the mm-hmm. border of, of Iraq there. And uh, yeah, I have a lot of strong opinions about this, strong feelings about this, um, and I actually have read the entire agreement, so I know I think I know a little bit more about this issue than most issues. Right. You, you definitely know a lot about it more than me. I am admitting kind of off or just kind of offhand right now. I started to read through it and it is definitely much more of a technical agreement than other um, let's see, other policies or agreements that are in the news. Right. But just get into what Trump said. So I have I have some quotes from his speech. He said, we cannot and will not make the certification. We will not continue down a path whose predictable conclusion is more violence, more terror and the very real threat of Iran's nuclear breakout. Trump said, I am directing my administration to work closely with Congress and our allies to address the deal's many serious flaws. So the Iranian regime can never threaten the world with nuclear weapons. So that seemed to be kind of what Trump's thinking is, I, I, I guess. And um, I don't know, where do you want to begin? The reason that the president of the United States has to certify the agreement every three months is because Congress passed a deal basically right along the same time that the the um, international community, uh, a community passed the JCPOA. So yeah, the Iranian agreement is called the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. And it was signed between the five permanent members of the of the uh, Security Council plus Germany, and the EU was also involved. Um, but so con- U.S. Congress passed what's called the Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act of 2015, and so like that was that was Congress trying to reassert its its actually its importance here and its its mm-hmm. its role here in foreign policy, right. because President Barack Obama it's it's actually not a treaty. That's why it did not have to go through through uh, the Senate. It's an mm-hmm. agreement, and that's because more and more executives don't want Congress to get involved in their agreements. Um, right. So that was like a tactic that Obama had, but also Congress tried to sort of um, uh, play their cards by creating this Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act. Um, so yeah, uh, I'm sorry, I'm talking a lot here. Uh, no, you're but fine. So Trump, so it does not really, it doesn't. It does not get rid of it does not get rid of the, the agreement. The agreement is still in force. It's still functional. It's 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 still being implemented. It just he wants Congress to um, possibly pass stronger <clears throat> sanctions on un, on unrelated aspects of Iranian behavior, and that's kind of like where we're at right now. Right, right. I guess uh, one point I wanted to make, kind of just in your your first statement there, was talking about how Congress is going to take more of the power of this and. I guess my thinking is this is a good thing is that it's better to have the power of of these type of agreements and whatnot to be with Congress and not be on the whim of the executive branch. Is that something, do you share that intuition? So I actually don't share that intuition, but I, more and more, I, I believe that local control, that this is, this is, this is, this is kind of a tangent, but Mm -hmm. it's kind of related. Like I actually don't have those instincts basically. Like I think the executive branch, because it 
fills its bureaucracy with more experts as opposed to more people who are elected, that mm -hmm. they actually have better understanding of international relations than Congress does. But I really still do believe in checks and balances. Right. I believe that Congress should have a role. I think that Congress has abdicated responsibility in all these wars of the last decades. Right. And so, like, I'm saying, like, I don't have the intuition, but I definitely um, I definitely think there should be more con congressional insight. But I'm not against executive yeah. power, basically. Yes, yeah, to that point, and that's something I've kind of, I guess, teeter-tottered with, is that understanding uh, that we should actually care. I think in general, we need to care more about expert opinion. I think that yeah. just the, the, you know, the idea in America that experts don't matter is something I, I don't, I, I don't agree with. But the other part of me is like, when we see who is in charge of the executive branch, right. it's just it, uh, when it's someone that we don't like, or, you know, put the shoe on the other foot, I think is a good case to, you know, why it is important, like you said, to have checks and balances. Um, but, uh, so, yeah, so so one point here is like, especially when it comes to international agreements, um, other countries won't sign them if they think that domestic parliaments will block them. So again, it's just there's so many actors involved, and it's it's not like it's not a black and white like the executive is trying to usurp its power and trying to you know be tyrannical. It also is like other countries won't sign if they think your Congress or your parliament is going to you know take out very specific. Um, rules or you know mm -hmm. bylaws um so that's right. just very complicated um probably should say so in general this agreement with iran so in exchange for nuclear related sanctions relief iran agreed to limit their number of centrifuges by more than 60 percent they agreed to maintain a nuclear program only for civilian purposes such as those for medical uses and they agreed to robust international inspection of their nuclear facilities um that's and i just the, say that the last it, one is like the biggest what what I guess they just say the biggest flaw or what the the biggest problem of the deal right now, if I could just say real quick. Um, in in what way? Well, I guess uh, from what I was kind of reading, the critiques of the deal is that the the uh, what's the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, yeah. is that um, you know people are kind of saying that they're kind of like a joke of actually trying to go in and monitoring. I have this uh, one quote. They're saying that the UN's IAEA is charged with what laughably passes for the mo quote monitoring of the JCPOA, which uh, for listeners that's the Iran deal, and related side agreements, which the Obama administration shielded from congressional inspection. In the last week, the IAEA fessed up that the agency has been unable to verify that Tehran is implementing the deal. The regime is barred inspectors from inspecting military sites. And uh, they're saying that IAEA officials say that they won't even ask for access because they know Iran would say no. And then, see, this is uh, something I wanted to get your opinion on is that they said because it would give the Trump administration, quote, an excuse on the deal. So right. there's a lot um, kind of loaded there. But it seems like one of the biggest critiques is that, you know, they're actually not able to get into that. It's called Ferdo or Fardo, which is a uh, the one that uh, one of the nuclear facilities we didn't even know about till 2009 or right. I, I know that was like a big um, um, contention, yeah, but I, I, I just think so like a lot of the, a lot of the reports that say the I, the IAEA is saying that they can't verify. Mm -hmm. They seem to be either lying or like taking one very specific sort of like, like, like sentence of the entire IAEA agree, uh, um, statement. Mm -hmm. And like, because when I try to read what the IAEA actually says on their own website and in their own statements, according to them, they are being able to monitor and verify every part of this agreement. And that's why I don't trust a lot of these a lot of these criticisms because they're coming from partisan sources a lot of time. And um, I think they have their own agenda about well, sure. Iran. And um, I'm saying, like, I don't know. Uh, I try to read what the IAEA EA says themselves, and I don't see any big hole there. Like, mm -hmm. I don't see, I don't see, I don't actually see them saying that, especially the way that is reported. Mm -hmm. um, that's just right. my problem with 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 that kind of criticism. Sure, right. Well, that's fair. What well, I guess one of the other things that I, um, you had mentioned that Trump wanted to add new sanctions. I kind of wanted to. I had a, a just a quote from CNN that was kind of explaining that. It says that the administration wants to include new sanctions in U.S. law that would snap into place should Iran continue to launch ballistic missiles or refuse to extend restrictions on its uranium enrichment when the deal expires in eight years' time. And that's referring to the sunset clause that people like to say is also one of the other. Uh, 
flaws of the deal or something that is strongly critiqued from uh, from the you know from the other side from what I can tell. So much of the agreement does not have sunset clauses for a long time actually um, till, until 2030. Um, and then if you look at the actual agreement itself, it says like in in it it says you know until you know it says Iran can't enrich uranium to the 90 percent tile um, status of it. Um, until 2030, comma, and thereafter. So, and thereafter means they can't do it afterwards either, like either. Um, and there are a ton of international agreements that have sunset clauses, and the way that they sort of became more permanent was because for the 10 or 15 years that, that it existed, all the parties were checking each other. They were making sure that they were all going to, you know, uh, stay in the agreement. And then they got back together towards the very end of it and made it more permanent. Um, that seems to be how international agreements work. Um, and Iran is part of the, um, the non, non, non-nuclear proliferation treaty anyway. So again, I, I, and I'm, I'm not saying you should trust, you should trust Iran like on their word, right? I mean, they're, they're in it. They're yeah. a nation state. They're a horrible um, and evil. I'm not gonna, well, I'm not going to call them evil, but, uh, we can get into that. Well, I guess it's but, worth noting they're one of the only three countries that is listed as an actual terror state from, you know. From the yeah, US you know, government. You know who's not listed as a terrorist state? Uh, our allies, like Saudi Arabia. Um, like, right. it's political. It's a political de- uh, designation. And I wish it wasn't. Like, I wish the State Department actually, you know, uh, had everyone on the list who actually are engaging in terrorist sponsoring. But they don't. They only put their, you know, their non-allies on it. Um, but anyway, Iran says they don't want a nuclear weapon. And... Which is obviously bullshit. Though. I I mean you right. could, I mean we can obviously know this is bullshit. I mean they just wasn't one of their. Uh, I read I I think it was from CNBC. They said that one of the last ballistic missiles that they uh, that they sent had etched in the side Israel must end or Israel must right. be gone or something like that. I mean they're <laughs> so I mean they can say what they want, but that's that's a pretty clear message. Their to public me. statements on Israel don't help them out very much i'll definitely say (laughs) that that's an understatement Um, right (laughs) but it's like so i guess i I was thinking of like there's four there were four options available before this agreement became an agreement it was the status quo so basically allow iran to keep doing what they're doing um it was this agreement then it was this agreement i put i put like plus like this agreement that is somehow stronger agreement that would include the ballistic missile testing uh funding for terrorism right um and then, as Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas literally says, the policy of the United States should be regime change in Iran. Um, so the choice was the agreement, as it is right now, that is that is strictly focused on their nuclear program. Again, that that's pretty robust. It's pretty robust. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm saying, so what are the options now? If you, if if we if we uh, renege on this agreement. Iran's going to say what North Korea is saying. Um, you can't trust the United States in agreements, so we are never going to get into one again. We're going to we're going we're going to beef up our programs, and like it, it's it's coming in a particular time right now where the United States is being asked, what role are you going to serve in the world anymore? Are you going to be, are you going to be the hegemonic power still? Um, are you going to let right. China take over? Is no one going to take over? And that's called the G zero world that Ian Bremmer likes to. Uh, uh, I talk about a lot like the U.S. right now um, their word is not as strong as Americans like to think it is because we get into we get into the Iraq situation we get into Libya situation right. and like we I have- totally agree with that but the one thing that is as strong is their money though is that the U.S. dollars? When you look yeah. when you look at it, I think that the biggest thing that we have is our economy. And um, you know they're saying that uh, when Obama officials were first kind of coming back, talk, you know, on Capitol Hill talking about uh, the agreement, they were saying, well, if we change this and we do this, Europe isn't ever going to trust us because of this. Yeah. And the one of those experts in that in that Hudson. Uh, uh, debate was saying that they were wrong 100% of the time, that every single time that those Obama officials came back, who are still, you know, a lot of them are still holdovers in office today, is that they were wrong every single time, that every single time we came a deal or that we brought up another deal, that the U.S., it was, uh, we just, you know, it, to we, we turned to the other countries. It's like, well, you can deal with Iran or you can deal with us. You can have right. their, right. you know, 
backland economy or you can you can deal with us and they pick they're going to pick us every single time one you know and that that's not that's not going to change right. so that that shows the that shows the leverage that the US still has and it shows also just the the more like system like systematic world that we're living in where you know uh, there's there, there 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 are limited options like do you want to join the west with the agreements regarding Iran right. or do you want to join Russia and China um right i should say um the reason that um, Iran started to want um, ballistic missiles, by the way, was during the Iran-Iraq war in, in the 1980s. So Saddam Hussein started to bombard Iranian cities with ballistic missiles. Um, and Iran um, couldn't get their own thanks to U.S. sanctions already at the time. So then they, then they went to Libya and North Korea to get um, – and they have, the, right. they have their own indigenous program too. Um, I'm yeah. I just saying like uh, – and this is my whole, this is kind of about like, you know, local versus national versus international and like trying to understand in a realistic place, like where America is right now. And mm-hmm. most scholars agree actually that America, what America has to do right now is find a way to manage the relative decline. Like everyone's saying that, like just in general, like we are declining and we have to manage that in a way that maintains our international system that we have developed mostly on our back right that u.s has developed since 1945 and Mm -hmm. um the alternative to this agreement again for me is they're all bad they're all bad um and that's the reason why i support the agreement um plus israel and israel has said like israel says all kinds of things back and forth too and um this is a good agreement for israel and here's why it makes iran it, it draws Iran into being in, into the system. It makes them have to be accountable. And then it, it does say, look, if Iran does violate the agreement, now we have more of a standing to, um, to um, I'm trying to not use the word attack, you know, but to uh, like to sort of um, be more uh, tough on Iran because they were in this agreement. Um, this is a good agreement for all around, honestly, all around that we have this agreement right now is good. Like I like to think my view is nuanced, I guess, at the moment because I haven't really had the time to delve into it in nearly the specifics as uh, as you have, which I think this 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 podcast is obviously showing. But I wanted to point out a few things that I think is a problem is that right after this deal happened, Iran seems to be like they have they've actually been emboldened. And uh, one thing that they were pointing to was that Syria, we basically had Assad on his knees. And then right after this happened, they were able to funnel all this money by one thing they did obviously was got Russia involved. Then they were able to uh, funnel all this money into Syria. Then we had all these other issues. And then you look at what Iran is giving to Hezbollah all of the time. Then you look at just all these certain things have uh, increased and that they have been emboldened and that the reason that the Trump administration is deciding to do this now is because of their, you know, they're trying to spread out and they're trying to spread their power. They're trying to be the dominant force. And then in 13 years, when this agreement is up or, you know, that sunset clause happens, we can say and therefore, but I can see why people are, would be hesitant about that. You know, someone pointed out, uh, 9-11 9-11 was uh, seven, or 16 years ago, yeah. right? Like, was was a lot longer than what 13 years is, and, that, and that's going to come a lot quicker. But I guess kind of the biggest issue is that Iran seems to be, they, they are emboldening themselves, and that's why there needs to be... I guess, I guess. Well, I, I, don't, I don't know what there needs to be, but I'm, I, I'm trying to just, you know, explain why that they w- the administration would want to address I think, it right now. Um, um, so first, Iran now has way more power in Iraq, thanks to the Iraq war, like we, thanks to our blundering of that war, thanks for just having that war in general, um, Iran is now, have, has, has way more power in Iraq. Um, um, well, I forgot your point that you actually brought up that I wanted to, to comment on. Um, um, oh yeah, so I, I think there's like, the only way of stopping a state from getting a nuclear weapon, well, is if they decide on their own, basically, um, and actually, it actually has happened before. So Brazil and Argentina were were both kind of thinking about acquiring nuclear weapons, and they became allies. And so this, I think this is in the '80s, right? I'm not for sure on the dates. And, then, and so they both said, "We don't need nuclear weapons because we're allies now." And they both decided to not have a, a, a program. The only way to stop that, so it's it's either internal decisions or. I think regime change, and that's what I'm trying to avoid. It has never worked. Right. It doesn't work. Mm-hmm. It doesn't end in six months. 
it does like it it it, it continues for decades like the outcome the, right. the consequences the so what's interesting to me kind of is like it seems to me there's all these comparisons to North Korea and that seems kind of the problem I know there's been a, probably a few times when we talked about North Korea that um, we've made the comparisons but I have a quote from uh, our UN yes our UN ambassador yeah. And so what Nikki Haley was saying is that she she really doesn't want Iran to become North Korea. And she was being interviewed on ABC's This Week. And she said that um, she's talking about Iran. She said, we have to hold them accountable. They can't be continuing to support terrorism around the world like we are seeing them do. They can't continue to test ballistic missiles, which will lead to a nuclear Iran. They can't continue to do arms smugglings. But what she doesn't want to happen is based uh, them becoming a rogue state with all of this and becoming a, a problem just like North Korea and I mean, obviously, I agree. I mean, I think <laughs> that, that we don't want that to happen. I think I just I disagree on the United States government's um, understanding of why states acquire nuclear weapons. Um, well, Trump's understanding or like I, the government? I, that is why I said the U.S. The U.S. Trump, federal government okay. for many administrations now have said we can't let these states get nuclear weapons because they're going to attack with them. I don't think that's why states require nuclear weapons. Um they require them for deterrence reasons. They require them so that we don't attack them. And I say, yeah. like, I am an American citizen, but I think there's a lot of, of short-sighted, like, myopia going on where it's it's actually quite incredible now, to be honest, in 2017, after all we've done in the Middle East, that we can say, now we're going to make this other state act this way or else. Like, why? We, we, we don't have that credibility anymore, man. We really don't. Um and that's not that's anyone's fault but our own. Um, and yeah, again, and, and this isn't this isn't like this isn't coming like this isn't like all these decisions and agreements have to be rooted in the fact that this is reality, and we have a, we have a a limited set of options, and that you you only can do so much. You can't like you can't just make them do whatever you want. You can keep putting on sanctions. You can do all that. But Iran's not a poor country. They have it's their economy is over one. I think it's like almost two trillion dollar economy. Um, Wait, when I looked, it was only like four hundred billion that they were actually that they were their economy. Else. I thought it was. Uh, I think they have a one point five trillion dollar economy. The last I looked, I think that is the last I looked. Um, but I'm saying that's 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 not that is large enough to have their own domestic industries where sanctions won't stop them from acquiring nuclear weapons. And um, right. like I said, Tom Cotton himself straight up said that we. Yeah, I just say if you're interested, yeah. I just pulled up the the Iran GDP right uh, from 2015 was 393 um, billion. So it's it's a lot. It's a lot lower than maybe you may have thought. I, I would so, swear that it's one trillion. That's interesting. Um, okay, I'll take right. it. That's fine. I take it. Um, <laughs> sure, that's okay. But yeah, well, um, I guess um, I don't know. I kind of I was curious, you know, what what you thought going forward is that that debate that we we talked about before the show which i know i mentioned i, I didn't tell our, our listeners but the hudson institute had a it wasn't really a debate it was more of a discussion they were just talking about the future of the iran deal under trump administration and kind of they have insight to the trump officials and you know a lot of them are just obama holdovers anyways so they have they had insight into them and and they were talking about kind of what they thought the future was going to happen so i was kind of interested what do you think is likely that um, is going to happen? But I mean, I'm yeah, not... um, of course, I don't know. Um, it's, right. it's I know every we're no fortune time, tellers. I mean, but... every time I think I have Trump's behavior understood. Um, I'm, so I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised he didn't. I'm, <laughs> like, like, I'm not surprised he didn't recertify it. But I it's it's so strategically weird because, again, so are you yeah. real quick are you glad he didn't just outright cancel yes. it though are you glad that he decided to recertify yes. it and send it over to congress as opposed to just he, you know, so i'm it pretty off. like i'm cynical about if yeah if he would have said this agreement is no longer active i'm tearing it up like i see another war in the next who knows you know who knows three or four years like that to me is a that to me is a neoconservative move saying like agreeing with tom cotton senator tom cotton of arkansas He's, he's on my list. He's on my yeah. list right now. That's why I'm repeating his name. That, <laughs> like, the only option is regime change. Um, the yeah. First of all, they keep electing Hassan Rouhani, who's a moderate in Iran, 
Like the population there is one of the most cosmopolitan, educated populations in the country. It's they super don't young like, too, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, they're very young. It's, it's not like the Iran population overall is. is I think young. it's like sixty percent, or like you know, are twenty-five years old or younger. You know, that that's really young. Um, the, yeah. Like they're they're trying to. They have their own. They have their own system. They have their own. They have their own elections as as you know, as sort of not as not as full as they actually are. You know, right. but like they, yeah. again, like. We, we, we can't walk around and just be this imperial power that just says, do whatever, like, do whatever we want. It's 2017. Uh, we can't do it anymore. It doesn't work. <laughs> sure. Well, that's, that's fair my enough. I mean, yeah, absolutely. All right. So moving on to our next story that we want to talk about, which, which does tie into our later segment. Right. But So Trump decided that he was going to tweet and have a little tweet storm about the media on an issue that he knows absolutely nothing about. What a shock. So Trump decided to tweet on October 11th. He said that network news, and I'm going to do my Trump impersonation. Network news has become so partisan, distorted, and fake that licenses must be challenged <laughs> and if appropriate, revoked, not fair to the public. That's pretty good. That's pretty good, man. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. And so, so basically what Trump thought is that, first of all, that you have to have a license to have the press, which, uh, motherfucker, we have a First Amendment. So <laughs> real quick, I, I wanted to uh, find this quote. I, I, unfortunately, I didn't put the author down. It, it was either from CNBC or National Review, I forget, but it says, I think it's National Review based on the right. rhetoric of it, but the president proposed having the FCC review and possibly revoke the license of cable news channels and network broadcasters whose news programming he deems unfair. The problems with that are several. First, as one FCC commissioner took the time to explain, the FCC does not license networks or cable channels. NBC, CBS, ABC, Fox News, etc. do not have FCC licenses to review or revoke. The FCC licenses individual stations. President Trump might want to take the FCC standing advice on the matter and write a letter to the station manager or to the directors of the news divisions. Surely they would enjoy that. <laughs> uh, I guess... So. There's, there's I a guess lot this there. goes to the, you know, this goes to, are Donald Trump's tweets supposed to be taken literally or seriously? Or seriously. Right. Which, right. That distinction is sometimes stupid, you know, but I mean, like, because I get that. Is that, is that supposed to be like just a dog whistle to his, to his base, you know, like, okay. I like, like, what's he trying to do there? Um, I know. And I don't get it too, because you would think most of his base, or I would assume from the demographics, it seems are more like fo they want Fox news. And do they not think about what would happen? Like if Obama did oh, this I and said, Hey, I don't like what Sean Hannity is saying about me tonight. So we're going to have to revoke the license. Okay. Oh, the, all hell I mean, that's what I always go to that. All like, hell would have absolutely. I mean, first of all, if you can, if you can, it's hard to imagine Barack Obama saying or doing any of these things without literally having like, <laughs> I don't know, sure. mass chaos in the streets. Like it's it's the hypocrisy right. is thick. It's palpable. I can like I can like smell Rush Limbaugh's breath right now. I don't know what that means. <laughs> uh, no, but like yeah, I I guess he's he's counting on his fact that on the fact that like his base are sort of he thinks his base at least is, you know, Breitbart news readers, Fox News listeners, and that they're taking a sort of scorch earth take on our country and they're saying Either you're with us or you're against us, and they don't think about it as like free speech. They're thinking about it as enemies. Honestly, it's all these mm -hmm. all these networks are enemies to our like right. to our populist movement. He that's absolutely true, and I think Trump himself even hasn't he said the the press is the the enemy yeah, of like, the people. Unbelievable, and, and it's just like that's absolutely ridiculous. And I don't know. I just it gets into where. Uh, I don't know if you listened to the most recent Sam Harris episode. I think it was posted the last okay. night or this this morning. It was, it was really interesting. They were getting into what they were talking about, the limits of free speech. Right. And so they were getting into try, trying to trying to understand if certain fake news and all that kind of stuff, is it actually destructive and is, you know, and what is actually harmful yeah. or I'm sorry. And, and what is actually free speech and kind of getting into, and it was a great discussion. I recommend who all was of the, uh, who was the uh, guest? Go check that out. Uh, I can't remember, okay. I, but I think he was a law professor from Harvard. I know he was the most cited law professor in the country, uh, and it was like by far. It, it wasn't even close. It's not, it wasn't I, Lawrence Lessig, was it? No. Okay. Avik, not, not yeah, Avik. I, I can't think of that guy's name. There's only like one other guy who I can think of as who's cited that much. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, I, yeah, I can't remember what, but I know, yeah, I know, I know that they are or the way Sam introduced it was or introduced him was that he was by far the most cited law professor in um in the country. I didn't pull it up. I, I, yeah, I found it. it was Cass Sunstein. Okay, Cass Sunstein yes, is a boss. That's He's right. a boss. I've read some of his uh, journal articles actually. I haven't read any of it. Oh, okay. Any of his books, but he wrote a lot about a uh, like um. On behavioral economics and like nudging like can you nudge people's behavior to do something a little bit better as opposed to a little bit worse and then he actually wrote about right. like um conspiracy theories and yeah that was one of his questions was like is it um are these benign or do they impact people's actual actions and <clears throat> excuse me and and decisions in the world right. and I, that's where i always lean right like i always lean towards i think these conspiracy theories and sort of even these fantasy beliefs about vaccines and all that i think they're completely harmful um, but again, that does get into like, what do you do about that? Uh, that that's exactly. very that's very very hard. <laughs> Which is that? I mean, that's that's a pretty good segue into our next into yeah, our next segment. So moving on to our beyond the lead, which I mean, I don't know if we really have to point out because it's it's tied in so much with this but um in beyond the lead segments we like to get into big ideas that relate to the news but don't always have to but this one directly does relate so uh if you if you wanted to tell us about this amazing actual article that i want to just point out you said is written by a liberal and it's <laughs> we to make that distinction that i thought it was definitely i seen more libertarian when i first read it and then when you pointed out, you're like, no, she's a liberal. And I sat there and I'm like, oh, yeah, I got to remember what a liberal actually <laughs> is and then forget about what it's turned into into this country. Okay, okay. But anyways. Right. So, <laughs> so the article was written by Oren Nimney and Nathan J. Robinson. And Nathan Robinson is who I know the most. Um, so it's published by The Current Affairs magazine. And it's called People Literally Do Not Understand What Laws or Are or How They Work. <laughs> I yes. love that title, um, by the way. And it it in general it is about a couple of opinion polls that came out recently that showed that the support for representative democracy is shrinking actually it's shrinking around the world and it's shrinking in america um and right. there and there's and it also was about the idea that um when you asked people um the question would you say that people should be allowed to express unpopular opinions in public, even even those that are deeply offensive to other people, or that government should prevent people from engaging in hate, hate speech against certain groups in public? Um, so yeah, it was mm-hmm. it, it was all about like what are what are the current American views about free speech, and the takeaway is that too many Americans on both sides of the political uh, um, alley, um, aisle, sorry, alley, aisle, um, are are expressing some sort of authoritarian <laughs> tendencies. Um, yes, it's 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 far too much for my comfort levels. That's for sure. There's a lot of interesting points. I, I liked how uh, I I don't even know where to, where to begin, but I know one of the things that they they brought out was how uh, you know one of the poll things was misgendering someone and right. how they how you know uh, California is now making it illegal to do that. And I know it or after C16 in Canada, it's it's now illegal to or it now currently is in Canada. And they did make the distinction saying, yes, it makes you an asshole. There is no denying it. And it is incredibly rude. But what should the government actually do about right. that? And I thought that that was an interesting one because that's, you know, that just it hits at, I don't know, just kind of a soft spot in, in American culture right now when it comes to that um, to, to LGBT rights and whatnot. And, and- so because it was written on a, a more liberal website, the, they do focus on the fact. So um, when you create harsh, um, harsh pen, um, penalties, even for gun possession, as they point out, um, the way that yeah. policing actually works, those laws will end up stopping searching and prosecution of more young black men. Um, and I, I think it's important to point out like how laws actually work. And like the idea that you right. want to put more and more people in our penal system right now, that isn't very good. Like right. uh, there's all kinds of problems with it. P- uh, plea bargains, which we uh, talked about a few uh, like a month ago now. Um, and yeah, I, I, so this does separate though. Like when people are, are answering questions, do they really like, do they really want laws to be enacted or are they expressing just their opinions? Like, do they even know what they're answering? Like, right. Yeah, absolutely. I, I wanted to read from that article real quick because uh, that gets to the main thing I wanted to, right. to, to uh, point out. 
uh, they said that that's because law is a blunt and brutal instrument, one that doesn't simply abolish things by magic, but through a real world process of enforcement. Yeah. No matter how serious, for example, murder or silly, like squeegeeing, the offense is, the police are the police. While you can tailor the punishment to fit the crime, and there's a difference between 30 days in jail and 30 years, to some degree, the process is the punishment. Yeah. Everyone who commits a crime will be arrested, have their life disrupted. Everyone will have their life dis- uh, disrupted through a costly and tedious court process yeah. everyone will get the mark of a criminal record following them for the rest of their yeah, lives that's good and that is something that nobody thinks about at all in these polls at least from what i can right tell. and that's from the polls like i just said they're like yeah do people know that do, do people want to see their opinions actually implemented and do they actually even think about the process that's a great uh that, that's a great paragraph though for sure mm-hmm. um yeah it just hints at or it really points to the problems with making things illegal yeah. and what it actually takes. I know in the article, which th- this won't, you know, this isn't a substitution for this this article. Everybody should, should go read it. It's great. But they're really talking about what happens when things actually are legal right. and what the process a- actually is and what, you know, and who actually gets screwed over. Like they said, you know, certain gun laws and which it is interesting, you know, this, I didn't know this was a, this was a left-leaning, uh, what's it called? Current, ev- uh, current events? Current affairs. Current affairs. Current affairs. Current affairs. Okay, but uh, but yeah, that, that and it's just I, I don't know. I just found this. Uh, it was a very, it's a very great uh, look at how laws actually work and who they actually get at and why we can't criminalize speech. And but one thing that it doesn't get into, which I really liked that this episode of Sam Harris did today, is that I I've been really interested in what are the limits of what free speech right. is. And so may, maybe that's something we, we could delve well, into. I, we could well, you know devote entire episodes. We'll to. kind of get into that a bit too in my in my in my individual segment, just based on what it's about, which I'll kind of explain in a mm-hmm. minute. Um, but so there was one other survey. I don't think I even said this to you, but we could talk about it right now. So there is a there is a world values survey. And it asked, um, so only about 30% of Americans born after 1980 believe it is absolutely essential to live in a democratic country, compared with 72% of Americans born before World War II. Um, That's interesting. Yes. And I remember this a while ago, though. They're actually, so the the percent of young people who think it is essential to live in a democratic country is going down in every Western democracy right now. Every single one. That's fast. Um, I'm yeah. saying... I think it's less though, like less literal. It's people, it's people expressed expressing frustrations with the system. I think that has to be that has to be that's important to to, to frame that, absolutely. it. Absolutely, I think that's I think that's actually that's it. Right. That has to be it, especially when it comes to young people that really don't even understand what's going on. They just but it is it also is that similar. Like I think it was Carl Sagan who said like science like science works so well that you forget that there's science going on. And it is like you, you get to a point when That's a you get quote. to a point when it's a paraphrase, but you get to a, a point in your society where things are actually running relatively smooth as compared to those who were born before World War II, right? So right. we don't Absolutely. we don't know what to fear even. Like we don't know what like how bad things can get, or we don't know about other systems, right? So it's easy to say, yeah. I guess this is important, but not that important, because you don't know any you, know, right. you don't know any alternatives. Like I know one of the he's a historian and podcaster, um, Dan yeah. Carlin. One thing he he likes to talk about is how nobody today we we nobody at least young but and even older people kind of forget what it was like to have the red stare and to actually be terrified of the you know of the USSR bombs. Right, exactly. And it's pretty, and it, it is true that I mean if you think what do we really have to worry about today living in modern day America for the most right. part? And there's, you know, there's a couple of the main killer of us is heart disease. Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and like that, like that actually has cultural and psychological and sociological effects of being yeah. safe, of being relatively safe and not having right. that, like not having an external enemy allows us to be so internally divided. And I know some mm-hmm. like some people call that like Cold War, um, like Cold War syndrome, where like people are saying, like right. they're asking, "Are you actually nostalgic for the Cold War?" Well, no, not actually nostalgic for the Cold War, but it it did it did bring us closer together in a lot of ways. I've also heard that same thing call it the nine eleven okay. effect because they said right after nine eleven, everyone in New York loved each other. Right. So yeah, I mean that's a good point because when you give somebody something to rally against, it brings people together. That's I mean that's how politics works. It's, right? I think it's just how people yeah, it's how people work. Like it's just how people yeah, work in right, general. Right. Just people in like, general. It's how it's, yeah, like that's how group mentality yeah. and group psychology. Just, yeah, I think that's so. How we I are. Think so. 
there's not much we can do about it, I guess. Yeah. Um, so there, so just to end this, so just to end this, there's one quote that I wanted to point out, mm -hmm. like one sentence, and it was about like what can be done about young people's um, concerns, and they they just write. So the person who wrote this is. Clay Routledge, he's a professor of psychology at North Dakota State University, and this piece I'm actually reading is called Why Are Millennials Weary of Freedom from the New York Times? And he says, mm -hmm. if we want future generations to have faith in freedom, we need to restore our faith in them. I thought that was nice. Absolutely. That, was nice. <laughs> and that is true. Yeah, that ties into one thing I've, I've been saying for years is that uh, stop blaming us for a lot of the problems going on, especially when you look at like the housing yeah, crash. All and of all them. That. And, <laughs> It's like uh, when you looked at the parents, it's like, hey, you and uh, you're the ones that did that. You voted for that. And then I was laughing. They talked about participation trophies. I'm like, you gave us the damn trophies. We didn't yeah. ask. For, we didn't ask for yeah. the trophies. That's your yeah, fault. Not exactly. ours. Yeah, exactly. Sorry. <laughs> right. 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 So you want to get into your yeah, sentence? Sure, since it ties, you know, it's, it's you know, it's all kind of linked in. I feel like I almost should have prepared something that was <laughs> no, more good. tied into no, free speech since mine no, has nothing to let's do Let's mix it up, man. Let's mix it up. Yeah, so my individual segment here is actually similar to one that I did. I think it was actually in our very first inaugural episode, and it, uh, that one was called "In Defense of Europe." And now I'm bringing that little, I'm yeah. bringing that series back, and this is called "In Defense of Free Speech." And it's actually not so much a written, okay. it's not so much a written monologue, but I wanted to get into. So John Stuart Mill wrote a book called "On Liberty" in 1859. And it's considered the greatest like single volume defense of the individual right to think, speak, and decide for themselves. And he has yes. four reasons of why um, free speech uh, has to exist. So number one is he says, if any opinion is compelled to silence, that opinion may, for aught we can certainly know, be true. To deny this is to assume our own infallibility. So I like that he pointed out like, we don't know everything. Just that simple. That that's why free speech has to exist. Yeah. Like we're not. Absolutely. We, we, is that there isn't anything that is yeah. set? I mean, besides like gravity and certain scientific laws, there is when it comes to politics and policy and uh, just humans in general, nothing I mean, is set. Still, but even even science true. though, right? Like science still works on. I'm going to prove you wrong. Right, I mean, right, right. I want right. to prove you absolutely. wrong. And and yeah. It has to work in that way, right? Yeah, it has to. And if if that's why I see it, it's like it has to be. I, I I know one thing. Just I want to add real quick that I think Neil deGrasse Tyson says all the time. You know, if people think that scientists all agree, you've never been to a scientific conference because right, the entire exactly. goal is to prove somebody else wrong. But the point I was just saying, you know, like gravity and laws of physics is what I was saying. Yeah, I understand. As, as I wasn't. You know, yeah, I know. I understand like what you're saying. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so number two was, though the silenced opinion be an error, it may and very commonly does contain a portion of truth. And since the general or prevailing opinion of any subject is rarely or never the whole truth, it is only be the collision of adverse opinions that the remainder of the truth has any chance of being supplied. So again, like uh, everything, not everything, but you know, still like the, the the operating assumption has to be you can learn from every single thing out there and from every single opinion, and then we can add it to our quote-unquote truth and make it stronger. Um, so his third point is, let's say the received wisdom is actually the whole truth. This is my favorite point, actually. Let's say, let, let's say like we know the whole truth about something. Unless, unless it is suffered to be and actually is vigorously and earnestly contested, it will, by most of those who receive it, be held in the manner of prejudice with little comprehension of or feeling of its rational grounds. That to me is really oh, important. I love that. Right. That is beautiful. Right. Like, and we need, like, we need to understand why we believe things. Like that makes mm, us stronger. Absolutely. Like why we believe these yeah. things. Yeah. Um, right. So the last one is just the meaning of the truth or doctrine will be lost or enfeebled and deprived of its vital effect of the character and conduct. The dogma becoming a mere formal profession and inefficacious in for good, but cumbering the ground and preventing the growth of any real and heartfelt conviction from reason or personal experience. To keep understanding and fleshing out what we believe, think, and understand is why you got to have free speech. Um, but yeah, that to me was just like, I don't think you can get better than those four reasons of why free speech <laughs> is important. I mean, you could add to yeah, them. Absolutely. There's, there's more. There's always, are... there's always what to add, but when it comes to like the fundamental, I mean... Um, Mills the man. I think so. I, I think so. In the very next chapter, though, of, of this of this pamphlet, it, it was pretty short, actually. It's a book, but it's basically probably, it probably was called a pamphlet when it came out. Yeah. In the next chapter, he does say, which this gets into your, like, you know, like, what are the limits of speech? You know, he does say, no one pretends that actions should be as free as opinions. 
On the contrary, even opinions lose their immunity when the circumstances in which they are expressed are such as to constitute their expression a positive instigation to some mischievous act. And he mm-hmm. gave an example of it's different when you write in the press that corn dealers are called are are starvers of the poor. So you know these mm-hmm. these these corn merchants are starving the poor. It's different if you say it in the press, but if you said that in front of a mob, you're possibly calling for actions of violence against the corn dealers. Right. Um, so he says the liberty of the individual must be thus far limited. He must not make himself a nuisance to other people, and that's the anti-libertarian i shouldn't say that word but i'm trying to get it that's the pro-society part of mill that people do forget though um and i wanted to highlight there though but yeah i love sure. john Stuart mill and one liberty is really good yeah no that's great actually i'm glad you brought that up i read that but i, I read that book but it was so many years ago that that you know certain things just get lost but yeah for sure everybody needs to re- or i want to remember those four fundamental things because those are those are just great absolutely yeah they're so, good all right, so what I wanted to uh, give you guys today was so a few weeks ago, I in my uh, development psych, uh, developmental psychology class, that w- we had to write a paper about the early years, and we had a few topics, and one of them was media. And what I want to study is how media and uh, technology affects the mind and human psychology in general, that that's like what I'm focusing my research on with, uh, and you know, at, at college, and so I was going to read part of the uh, the paper. Okay. It's really short; it only had to be two pages, so I might just read the whole thing, honestly. But, right, right. So, so I was like, so in today's connected world, we tend to view technology as being primarily useful and productive for assisting us with tasks. These tend to be those that involve manual labor, hostile environments, and many other tasks that are better done by machines rather than humans. However, even though parents will spend billions of dollars every year on educational toys and media, one chore we cannot hand off to computers is educating our young children. Research has revealed that infants and toddlers do not benefit in any significant way from educational media because their brains are not developed enough, and reading to children and engaging with them face-to-face will harbor better results for cognitive and educational development. So one of the main points is that when children are young, they simply cannot understand the difference between what is on the screen and what what is not. And this um, is pretty interesting because you know their brains are still forming uh, connections. And one of the studies that found this out was pretty awesome. It was what they did. It was back in 1998. They had uh, two. It was a. Uh, I can't remember how many of them, but they had two-year-old children. They had to watch a video of adults hiding their favorite toy in another room and then look for that toy afterwards. The children were just simply unable to do this in basically every single case. So if children cannot handle simple tasks such as finding a toy from watching a recording of it, how can we expect them to handle new concepts by showing them on the screen? The answer is we cannot. And so not only is educational media for infants and toddlers ineffective, research also found that exposure to child or adult media can actually be harmful to cognitive development. And this has led the American Academy of Pediatrics to actually recommend that parents avoid exposing their children to media until they reach about two years of age. And so um, pretty much, you know, we're in the age where children are actually reading three times less than they are watching media on a screen. And so what that means to me is that we got to take steps to ensure our children's development is not hindered by our laziness and dependence on technology. Popular education media is actually shown to be ineffective at improving educational development. In some cases, it's actually damaging. And since it takes so many years for children to understand and make connections between fantasy and real life, engaging with them and reading to them is the best way to further their cognitive development. So I kind of skipped through a little bit, but you nice. get the basic gist of, of what it is. I want to applaud you, like literally. Uh, oh, thank I you. Feel, I feel like I was just <laughs> listening to an like Atlantic article being read to me. <laughs> oh, uh, seriously, thank yeah, you. That's actually. So- a great compliment. I know that's why I said it. <laughs> I, I would, yeah, uh, yeah, that was very informative, and it's very like it's cutting edge still too, right? Because we don't, we, uh, like, uh, technology is so ubiquitous, and it's it's like that's one of the questions I always have in my mind about having children in the future. Like, just it's paralyzing, right? Like, what what to do with this new sure. world that we're inhabiting? Um, Absolutely. And I have more, with like, so much that's going on with technology and just this rapid development. Right. And like, even like, which, the, you know, as you said, like the not even even so much as like, like the, the actual building of the brain can be affected. And that's yeah. harder to understand. Like, right. That's, Absolutely. That, that's 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 interesting and important to understand. Yeah. 
I guess one thing I can kind of point out is when uh, going into this, I was actually going to, I thought, make the case that we should infuse technology and whatnot. And so it's kind of funny. I went in thinking something and then right. I did research and found I was completely wrong. So yeah. I wanted to point that out because I think that's that's important for, you know, just, it is important. Just, in, just in general, you know. Right. And like, like yeah, and it's in. Like it is an empirical question. Like it's not it's not up to us to go. Hey, if I show my 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 one year old five hours of TV a day, is that okay? Well, we have the like that's an empirical question. We know yeah, it's not we can okay. Actually, yeah, we actually have answers to this. Yeah, yeah. answers <laughs> <Absolutely>. are possible. <laughs> right. All right. So moving on to our back pages this week, I'm going to recommend my favorite audio book, and it's called The Martian by Andy Weir. This was turned into a movie. I I. I don't know how successful the movie was. I feel like it was probably pretty, you know, it seems like a lot of space sci-fi movies yeah. tend to do pretty well. But this audiobook is amazing. I think it's only about 10 hours long, so uh you know, if you ha- if you have a drive to work, you can probably complete it in a few weeks and it is just the narration is amazing. There's not too many sound effects, but there's enough in the beginning that just gives it this eerie vibe and when there's certain things happening um, in the book, which in every single book, basically, you know, there's way more details than what ends up on the movie. Of course, that that's just that's just how it right. works. But though, I think that so I read the book after listening to it, and I rarely say this, but that's you know the reason why I'm recommending this is that the audio book was actually a better production, and I think it's a bet they do a better job than at least than my own brain was able to do while reading it. So right. again, that, that recommendation is the Martian by Andy Weir. It's an amazing story okay. and it's, it's, it's filled with, um, you know, all the science in it is accurate. There's a few things. It's not like the spacesuit and then the dust storm isn't accurate. But other than that, he actually, uh, he's a software developer, but he actually did a ton of research and did the calculations, like the orbital calculations for how long it would take to get to Mars. And he did all these things and it's, you know, there's right. real science in it, but it's, it's not a science, you know, it's not a bore. It's, it's an incredible book. So okay, I'm cool. That. Nice. So I actually didn't prepare anything except for other than on Liberty by John Stuart Mill. So yeah, that's what that's that's, that's what I'm recommending. One Liberty came out in 1859 by John Stuart Mill. To me, it is still the best one volume defense of free speech and individual liberty that I've ever come across. Absolutely. All right. Well, that wraps it up for this week's episode of Beyond the Lead. You can find me on Twitter at Mike Stinner with three N's, Mike S K I N N N E R, and I also have a website that's MikeStinnerMedia.com. Uh, yep, and I am Patrick Foran. You can find me on Twitter at PatrickFO, and my blog is iCriticalTheory.wordpress.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you next week.